Welcome to the Shoot This Now podcast. My name is Matt Donnelly. My name is Tim Malloy. Matt Donnelly, what do we do every week on the Shoot This Now podcast? Every single week on the Shoot This Now podcast, we talk about ideas that we think should be made into film and television or Apple Watch exclusive miniseries. Uh, it's coming. First, before we jump in, thank you so much to everyone who's been listening to us. We had such a great success with what, what the Alcatraz episode in particular did really well. Um, it seems to have touched a nerve. It's about the Native American takeover of Alcatraz in 1969 for 19 months. And I think there's so little content about Native American stories that I think by just talking about one, we got like really nice responses from people and really good ideas from Native American actors in particular. I'd encourage you to check out, if you like, yes. at Shoot This Now Pod on Twitter, um, where there's some really good discussions going on about Native American film and Native American art and some of the really talented people who, if you're a Hollywood person, you might think about hiring for a job. Absolutely. You know, we know you're out there. We know there's some Hollywood people listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you call us. You compliment us. Yes. You ask us to come work for your studios. <laughs> no. No. But we do think you should hire the actors you will find on at Shoot This Now. Amazing. Pod. Pod. On Twitter. Speaking of shameless self-promotion, um, if you like prison and you like film adaptation and you like anything we bring you here every week on Shoot This Now, would you please give us five stars on iTunes? It goes a long way. Um, and uh, I'm only one more five-star rating away from a free sandwich. So if you could kindly do that, leave us a review, um, drop us a line. We always appreciate social mentions, but five stars on the iTunes store, man, really is just all I want for Christmas. Again, we're not sponsored by Apple, but we do really appreciate the free sandwiches. Yeah. I got a tuna sandwich last week. Um, <sighs> Just really good. Yeah, if we get another tier level of points, it's like caprese. Uh, it's like a pesto with pasta, Sammy. It's it's it, it gets it just gets better, you guys. Speaking of speaking of self promotion, yes, this is a story of promotion gone terribly gone awry, terribly wrong. I mean, it's it's many stories, but what's most interesting from an industry perspective is that it was kind of long considered a cautionary tale about how hype can really overstate expectation and lead to crushing blows and failure in the music business. Um, but this is a weird one. It's not a, I think, would you say the the argument for like for like most overblown hype and, and quickest fall is like, I would say TLC. They oh. get a million, they were, I think were one of the first artists to get a million dollar deal and then they filed for bankruptcy two years later to the point where on their behind the music, they had to do the math of how you make a million dollars and file for bankruptcy. Um, but I, this is much deeper. I think with TLC, TLC is still incredibly loved and referenced oh, throughout yes. the culture. Like yes. even, even Sorry to Bother You, re- referencing rebounded. Left Eye. Oh. Um, there's probably more songs about Left Eye than there are songs featuring Left Eye. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. Uh, this, is a, this is a person who's kind of forgotten the history to yeah. the point where the way we discovered the story, the story of Jabriath. Yes, that's our subject this week, Jabriath, which um, is not a frat boy disease. My wife and I were sitting at the kitchen table uh, Saturday afternoon, and this Yahoo News clip came up, um, an interview with Joe, what's his name from Def Leppard? Joe Elliott. Joe Elliott, lead singer of Def Leppard, um, talking about Jabriath, and we both looked at each other like, who's Jabriath? Eh? And it was that he was this huge, openly gay glam rocker in the 70s, mm-hmm. who's like, was a very big deal and then suddenly just flamed out totally. Um, and watching it, we sort of thought, oh, this must be a mockumentary. Like, mm-hmm. there's no way this is a real thing. They went back and created all this footage. But no, he was a real guy. He was kind of an answer to Bowie and Elton John and some of the other other gay or gender androgynous 
artists of the time who were very fixated on space. So this episode is also going to talk a lot about the phenomenon of space gaze in the 1970s. Gaze in space. Um, yeah, but this, so this guy sort of came to the alchemy that, that sort of made a culture where he could have this meteoric start and then just never launch. Oh, look, it's a rocket reference. Rocket fail, reference. Fail to launch. Um, involves a cast of characters that you know. It involves Clive Davis. It involves um, a manager you probably don't know named uh, Jerry Brandt. It involves um, David Geffen, yeah. who people forget uh, before his Hollywood endeavors was a big music kingpin and still kind of is, actually. Oh, huge. Um, I mean, yeah. Guns N' Roses, The Eagles, Geffen I'm, is in the middle of everything. Absolutely. And it had that dope 80s logo that was a G shaped like a globe and because of the thing. You know what I mean? Just look it Such up. Such a good logo. Look up Geffen. Yeah. I remember... I had cassette tapes with the Geffen logo. Me too. Yes. Like that silver Geffen logo. Aging myself. But (laughs) let us set the stage for you. It's 1972, and uh, Jabriath had been... By the way, he's from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Shout out. Let's start at the beginning, because he is from King of Prussia. Yes. You have some Philadelphia... You have Philadelphia roots. I have some Philadelphia roots. I do. King of Prussia Mall was the mecca for shopping, for highbrow shopping. But it's this little town... That's above the I-76 highway before you get into Center City, Philadelphia. And Is it all... I-76 or 476? It's I-76. Okay. Yeah. There might be a 476 as you go deeper into Pennsylvania. Okay. But um, <laughs> uh, it's this little mall town um, that only has industrial plants and a mall. And, a, and one road in and one road out. If you're just joining us now, we're doing our most accessible ever episode of Shoot yes. This Now about a gay space rocker from the 70s and interchanges on Pennsylvania highways. There it is. All roads lead to Pennsylvania. Um, Yes, so he's born there, uh, raised in Houston, Texas, um, where he is considered something of a prodigy. Um, But things don't go too well for him there, do they, (laughs) He gets conscripted into the military. Mm. Um, He leaves the military. He is later arrested. He, he, I'm sorry. He goes off and does some of his first live performances. Yeah. Uh, then the military police apparently find him and drag him off to a mental hospital. Insane. Where he is held for a while and where he writes some of his biggest, um, I was going to say hits, but none of them are really hits. His, yeah. His first big songs. And by the way, th- those years when he was sort of on the run, he appeared in a production of Hair on Sunset Boulevard. He met probably all the characters running around, probably all the characters in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then sort of got to reemerge. Um, as an independent, but I'm sure not unscathed young man, where he was at a party, as people yeah. often go to, um, mm-hmm. with the manager of Carly Simon, a guy named Jerry Brandt, and yeah. Mr. Clive Davis, notorious A&R guy who was the shepherd for, namely, Whitney Houston as his biggest client, um, just plays his demo. And he was sort of immediately billed as an American David Bowie, which is something that the market needed and something that our culture needed. To jump back even a little bit more, his Wikipedia entry references the time that Brandt first met him, um, and it includes these lines. Brandt located Jabriath in California, where he was living in an unfurnished apartment and was working as a prostitute. Mm. Brandt, in walked this beautiful creature dressed in white. I said, why don't you come out to Malibu and hang out? That sounds like lines in a song. If I had a dollar for every time I had that happened to me. <laughs> Who is this beautiful creature? Come make a podcast. Draped in white. Let's go to Malibu. <laughs> yeah, so he gets this he gets this recording deal. Uh, which was largely considered an outrageous sum and one of the biggest deals at the time, which was worth about five hundred thousand dollars reportedly that's, to Electra Records. That's seven point nine trillion dollars in two thousand eighteen dollars. 
Is that right? Trillion? That Did I do the math right? right. I, I just entered it into... Okay, well, it's a lot of money. It's <laughs> half a million dollars. It is, at the time, believed to be the most lucrative recording contract of its time. And not just that the deal existed, but Mr. Geffen went all out for promotion, and especially for... We should mention, by the way, there was no pretense about just how loudly and flamboyant and hard-edged uh, Jabriath was. He was an openly gay rocker. Mm-hmm. That was that was, that was WYSIWYG. What you mm-hmm. see is what you get. <laughs> so it's kind of fearless and, and really eyebrow-raising to me that Geffen would plunge headforth into this massive blitz. I'm talking like full-page ads and lifestyle publications like Vogue, billboards. Um, just a real like like hero's welcome for this brand new artist in an age where openly gay musicians, I don't know, still don't have that kind of pop and circumstance. Unless you're I, Sam Smith, but you don't really I, talk about his sexuality. Elton John is around then making some of his most beloved songs, um, but no one is openly saying, yes, I'm gay. I mean, Elton John isn't coming out until years later. Um, Freddie Mercury isn't coming out until years later. Did he ever officially come out? Or Freddie, was it... uh, I don't. I don't think he. It wasn't really like I, you know, it is I, I now. I have to check. I, I don't believe he ever admitted his um, his condition. I think. I think he came out. I think he came out um, as HIV positive, and wanted to support the cause weeks before his death, if not days. I mean, because there's. Just watch Pose, you know, yeah. for like a good reference. There's so much Mother stigma. has been watching Pose, children. <laughs> Tim and I do the Electro Voice or have done the Electro Voice all day today, and it's been wonderful. We, we pronounce our T's very intensely. Um, we love it. This house of cards will topple. <laughs> so, you know, Pose is basically saying, is basically showing really clearly how much of a stigma there is attached to HIV at this time. Yeah. Um, it's easy to forget now, but... People are like even afraid to mention the name of it. Um, certainly, people are afraid to mention their that they're diagnosed with it. Yeah. So I was telling Tim even, um, and we love you, 20th Century Fox. But even in promoting their upcoming biopic of Freddie Mercury called Bohemian Rhapsody, all of their marketing materials referenced a life-threatening illness that he was dealing with, which is not naming exactly what it is, which is obviously HIV-AIDS. Um, he died of tuberculosis. He died of Irish bird soup disease. <laughs> and that's which is the a, end of that. Which is a callback to our episode on the Nazi Titanic, <laughs> one of our least popular episodes. <laughs> really? Uh, uh, you know, people, yeah. apparently Americans aren't that into Nazis. I was going to say, apparently Americans hate boats. <laughs> 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 um, anyway... But yeah, there's uh, that's just, uh, you're right. Still, the stigma stigma is a funny, funny thing. Um, but but in the context of like American celebrity, I think it's fascinating that everyone, multiple people in multiple boardrooms that wore ties to work, said, "Okay, here's yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars to create an international superstar who has very clearly coded sexual preferences and sings about one thing." And I just want to read this quote. He to to open to release the record, they'd booked a three night gig at the Paris Opera House, which Jesus. is like beyond. So now you're talking to this national coordination um, and that kind of connectivity think about in an age without social media we're doing that you'd be doing it in a vacuum and tossing so much good money after bad yeah right but here is what one of the descriptions to Bryeth, uh used for the show he said he would dress as quote King Kong being projected upwards on a mini Empire State Building this will turn into a giant spurting penis and I will have transformed into Marlena Dietrich Sure. That is how the singer is is is, is promoting <laughs> upcoming 
staggeringly expensive three-day engagement at the Paris Opera House to <laughs> launch his debut album as an openly gay singer in 1970s. It's just outrageous. There's also a quote where he says something like, asking me if I'm gay is like asking James Brown if he's black. <laughs> I mean, he's so open about this at a time yeah. that no one is. And I think because, you know, obviously this podcast mm-hmm. is about stories that should be made into movies. I think in the movie version of this, David Geffen gets a prominent role, um, or at least a prominent section, where Geffen, who is closeted at this time, or I don't think, I don't know if closeted is the right word, but he's, I don't think he's openly known to mm-hmm. be gay at this time, is probably thinking a little bit like, hey, let's try it. Like, let's see if we can sort of kick this door open yeah. with an openly gay singer. Maybe he'll be a huge hit. Maybe this will change society. Um, doesn't work. But I think Effin deserves some points for trying. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, um, I don't, I don't see a lot of. Um, how do I say this without without saying what I think about David Geffen? Let's take it broad. Let's take it broad. I don't see anyone else taking any kind of similar risk before or after yeah. <laughs> this DeBry thing. So there must have been something truly magnetic about him as a performer. And what's interesting is that you see that in the results. So the sales were dismal. The album did not chart, yeah. which is really bad. I mean, to 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 you're talking about you have to sell a certain number of units or undersell a certain number of units to even like, there's a hundred slots on yeah. on the top 200 billboard. Yeah. Um, but his shows continue to sell out, which probably tells you a lot about um, the early line battle lines for marketing because even if there's no Twitter, getting the three-day engagement at the Paris Opera and having a full page in Vogue probably guarantees that when you come to the either coast, yeah. your show's going to be sold out in whatever urbane, adorable venue that serves cocktails you're yeah. playing in. Yeah. Um, but by and all, it's considered, I think Esquire even called it, quote, the hype of the year. Yeah. And that's not a nice hype there. <laughs> yeah. I really can't think of another group that has, or another musical artist who has built so much of their image around being gay. Like the Another I can think of, and help me fill this in, yeah. when I was in high school, there was a group named Suede, and I love Suede. Suede had some great, great tunes, um, but part of their appeal was, oh, like, some of our members are openly gay, and the huh. singer was like, I am a bisexual man who has never had a homosexual experience, <laughs> which is like, uh, okay, like, it feels like you're a little bit riding on the coattails <laughs> here. I guess every heterosexual man could say that. It, it's like... Um, and that was a big part of Suede, and that was a big part of the mystique of Suede. Like, yeah. I used to have their T-shirt, which was two women kissing, and that was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they're openly gay. This was, like, a big deal in, like, 1992. So yeah. I can imagine what a big deal this was in 1973, 74, totally. 75. And also, let's not forget, too, that there's uh, – I think a lot of this arises from the panic or specifically around – male gay sexuality. Yeah. Because if you look at something like the Indigo Girls, who have been like folk legends living out of a gorgeous Taj Mahal (laughs) RV for the past 30 years driving up and down the entire country. As wow. in, like there's no, you know, and they've been, I wouldn't call them like maybe the best commercial artists, but I'm telling you they've been gigging for their entire lives. Yeah. And there's never been a problem. I think there's something really controversial and, and, and anxiety producing about men, famous men and sexuality. Yeah. That's, I think it's safe to say that society, American society has always been way more accepting of same-sex relationships between women sure. because men are necessarily And fetishizing them. too. Sure. To a fault. Yeah. I remember yeah. there was a Swedish pop girl group called Tattoo. They oh, were they Russian. Said, How dare you? Oh, oh, see, I romanticized them into Swedish so I can trust them. But isn't it funny that I, um, a heterosexual male, am acutely aware of who they were <laughs> and re- remember their songs? I can't wait to see what your wife says about that. <laughs> they, had, they had some good tunes. <laughs> they did have some good tunes. They really did. Um, 
Sorry, we're back after watching tattoo videos for three hours. Just kidding. There's only really three tattoo songs. <laughs> With six minutes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the inevitable and very sad decline. So now Jabriath is not just dealing with the rejection of him as an artist, which is soul-crushing enough for some. Um, I think it sent a clear message to uh, the machines, uh, the corporate machines in music, and then the cultural arbiters that the world was not ready for an artist of this ilk. So it probably set progress back for artists coming out by however many years it did. It's part of the problem of having only one openly gay artist. Yeah. Uh, when he fails, people use that as a referendum on all openly gay artists, which is crazy because, of course, there's other gay artists at the time who are doing incredibly well, including, say, Elton John. Yeah. Um, they're just not openly gay. Right. Freddie Mercury, just not known to be gay. Um, they're all kind of winking and saying, you can figure this out, but they're not taking the next step of openly saying, Hey, by the way, yes. Yeah, or or even maybe supporting people who are, because isn't that fascinating how people can sort of ride that line, that that edge of culture where it's like y you're you're telegraphing to your audience that you know who they are, you might be open to this certain kind of life, and it becomes a danger, danger insofar as like listening to me is is no act of rebellion, but listening to my music is a personal experience for you. Yeah. You risk nothing. You can put it in your Walkman yeah. or whatever. I just said Walkman um, or whatever. You know, you're listening. Like it's just so funny how you can be a rebel but affect no real change and never put your neck on the block. Yeah, as it would be to actually openly support an artist like this. Yeah. It's funny, that little game that everybody plays in the 70s, 80s, 90s of, you know, we're willing to like you and acknowledge that when you say she, you it might actually mean he in a song, yeah. but we're just as long as none of us openly say what's going on. Yeah, if you look, I remember this conversation about Frank Ocean before he wrote his opus that was actually very brave and sort of game-changing about how the first person he was ever in love with was a man. But uh, there's a song called Thinking About Ya. Oh, um, so and uh, I think this specific lyric was like, was like um, uh, my eyes don't shed tears, but boy, they bawl mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about you. And people were wondering if it's like, is he addressing a boy? Or is it, or is it like that Southern aphorism, like, boy, they bawl? Like, and yeah. even like that debate raged on Tumblr for 16 months. You know what I mean? <sighs> but it's so funny how it can get that specific. And people have to know. They have yeah. to be stated. They have to have, yeah. because people love labels. That's why, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can definitely remember like debates in high school over whether like the Pet Shop Boys were gay. <laughs> <laughs> stuff where it's like, and like why it mattered for some reason. And one of the main criticisms to dismiss artists in the 80s was like, oh, you like New Kids on the Block? Those guys are gay. And it's like, <laughs> well, that's, it should be like, where's the insult there? Yeah. So back to Jabriath, things don't go well. <laughs> I hate to ruin the end of this movie for you before it's even made. Um, but the album is not a success, to say the least. The deal disintegrates because of how expensive it is. Um, and he sort of slips away uh, into yet another identity. But this one has a sort of macabre and, uh, and kind of familiar um, historical end. He leaves music, uh, you know, the, the, the popular music industry altogether. Um, he moves into a peer, uh, uh, sorry, he moves into an apartment at the Chelsea Hotel, um, and he essentially sort of slips into this cabaret singer identity. Um, that it named Cole Berlin, and he just performs this sort of morose and uh, and very melodramatic shows at the Chelsea into perpetuity until wow. he untimely until his untimely passing. Um, so in a way, 
uh, that Marlena Dietrich fantasy you heard him talk about yeah. um, when he was supposed to be at the, at the height of the world, when he was about to become the American David Bowie, wound up being the actual Marlena Dietrich story where he just fades into obscurity and he really is only the victim of the system. And he dies of a deadly disease? He dies of a deadly disease that we will name on the 20th Century Fox film. Um, he dies of AIDS and is actually one of the first, not just high-profile cases, but first cases. Think about it. This is 1981. Yeah. So I think that these are early days for identifying what would become a pandemic yeah. that killed, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say it was in millions. It killed millions of men. I, I mean, I've seen it described heard. as a plague, and that's yeah. pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sad incredibly sad story and living out the rest of his days just twinkling at a piano and yet another character uh, just as devastating um, especially after having had so many people that I think today we would all say we're sort of, sort of um, or morally obligated to take care of the artist and, and, and develop and support the gift and, and, and the magic that they found instead of leaving him yeah. to sort of fend for himself under this impossible amount of attention um, and after, ha after having failed to deliver just let him Die, die in a penthouse at a piano. The, the Onion Navy Club did a review of a documentary that was made about him in 2012 called Jabariath AD, uh, and they noted that he really didn't take off, but they said no one seems to question whether he didn't take off. This is an exact quote. This is just me rephrasing. No one questions whether he may not have taken off because the music just wasn't great. Like, what if he just wasn't that amazing an artist? So we listened to him in the car, um, and also listened to some Elton John and some David Bowie and some of the other people who are in his cohort um, for comparison and for reference. What did you think of his music? Um, I think his music was, uh, ha had I not read first that he was described as the American Bowie, I think that really informed my take on it, but it sounds very similar. Yeah. And a sort of ephemeral 70s Glam, glam, but also very like, um, like very like. I almost want to call it hum rock. Huh. Like I think it's built just to be remembered. Huh. You know what I mean? Like built just to sort of like bounce around in your brain for a while. Yeah. Just like I mean, I do you know one person who hears Rocket Man and then doesn't sing it for two days? Right, right. You know that kind yeah. of like sticky, pervasive sort of artist. Um, I don't know that it, it had as much meaning and and as much heart as as his contemporaries, but probably because I think that they, they put this thing together in two years. Yeah, and I think they put it together under a clear Bowie model. Um, there's one first David Bowie's Space Oddity comes out in 1969 and is incredible. Like, the album is amazing. David Bowie's doing something totally different. He's not only crafting these great songs, but he's also, you know, crafting this androgynous identity. Um, in 1973, Jabriath comes out with Jabriath, Song number four is called Space Clown, and it has that weird, funky 70s swing um, mixed with kind of an operatic rock sense, very spiky music, um, followed by Earthling, which is a more traditional kind of semi-funk tinge number. Um, but you've got Space Clown and Earthling. He's definitely playing up the whole space thing. And I think it's part of a whole movement that we kind of identified driving here. Yes. Of like... Space gaze, or like yeah. There's a queer. There's a uh, uh, to let my liberal arts education show. There's a big queer read you could do on all these sort of different elements coming together. Tim brought up a good point. <laughs> How did you put it about the moon? Well, in 1969, America fakes the moon landing. <laughs> um, there's tremendous anxiety around space, 
and what's going to happen in space in this new world that we're going into. And that seems to become a metaphor for for gay life in America too, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, and I, I, there's always been a sort of um, when you talk about LGBTQ people in a cultural context, and, and or anything that's the other, I think there's always a very easy way to go um, sort of a, out of the norm, which uh, which includes like even the limits of gravity. So there's always a celestial connection. Like there's a lot of queer sci-fi. There's a mm-hmm. so I think space is a very comfortable terrain for for uh, alternative identities because there's no definition there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There's no whatever. But specifically with songs like um like Rocket Man, mm-hmm. you're looking at Elton John who was not yet out, mm-hmm. um and he's writing a song about leaving his earthbound family and expectations. He explicitly says, "I miss my wife. I miss my kids." Yeah. And as you said, he's going into the unknown. Yes. But somehow he is strangely compelled to this, despite obligations and maybe even real love and genuine relationships he has on Earth. But he can't resist his calling, his his higher calling, his literal higher calling. Mm-hmm. So, are, are you saying there's some kind of symbol in the rocket? There, yes, it's shaped like an ovary, uh-huh. um, and <laughs> there might be some rocket symbolism. <laughs> and Rocket Man might be a very cute nickname for someone who likes rockets a lot. <laughs> um, there's also Space Oddity. He's, it's kind of the same thing. He's going into space. He's going into something very unfamiliar that he's nervous about. Um, David Bowie unveils the the Space Oddity music at the same time he yeah. unveils this androgynous image. Which also is another, like, the, the Bowie song, too, has a fascinating twist because it's a tragic story. Yeah. Think about how enduring the myth of he and Mick Jagger is. Mm-hmm. And then... And their relationship, and then look at the lyrics of Major Tom, where it's about suffocating. So if wow. he's occup- if he's occupying the same sort of queer space, that maybe maybe is a symbol that like Rocket Man, it, it's more about the anxiety it, it puts on maybe an identity that's probably more leaning on the Kinsey scale towards heteronormative. Like I, I know this yeah. now is like a suddenly like a liberal arts podcast. I like it. Um, I mean, you've also got Freddie Mercury doing the yes. doing the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, and I think they're kind of using it space as a metaphor for the the dark and the unfamiliar and mm. the scary, but also, also adventure, f- freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the final frontier. Yeah. Um, so there does seem to be there do seem to be some artists who are embracing space, which is the most obvious narrative available. Yeah. As a metaphor for their sexual journey. Right. And beautifully said. Yeah. And Jabriah's most on Jabriah's album, there's what? There's a song called Space Clown. There's a song called Earthlings. Yeah. Um, so I think that this theme is omnipresent in his work or in that, that, that first piece of work. Um, and sure, there's probably also a little bit of record executive saying like, huh, how do we put you in a box? Well, the closest thing to you we've got is Bowie. Bowie hit it with this space thing. Keep going with the whole space deal. It's possible that he's encouraged in that direction. Yeah. But, you know, he does still perform these songs. Totally. Well, what's the model? Innovation, imitation, saturation. Oh, really? That's the communication model, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, he definitely goes for saturation. Sure does. Um, but by the way, uh, just lest you listen to his music and, and, and form your own opinion as you should, you should know that Jabriath has has a legacy, not just as a cult glam rocker who was fantastically openly gay, but has informed a lot of people. Joe Elliott, number one, as you said, Tim even found the idea for this by watching Yahoo with with Mrs. Malloy, um, as they do around around the kitchen table on the tablet, just watching Yahoo video clips. Um, We're the hottest couple of 1999. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people like uh, Marcy, 
Um, Scissor Sisters, uh, Jake, you're Justin Tranter, who's a huge songwriter. He's written for everybody from Justin Bieber to Katy Perry to wow. a lot of pop music. Um, Henry Rollins, who is like, who is by the way one of the most unlikely, and I love this guy so much. He is such a Lubbock, Texas, straw chewing, hmm. hard rocker who just loves gay people, but is the straightest guy you would ever find. He is like your gruff Grand Torino next door neighbor who's like, get off my lawn unless you're doing car wheels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he puts like the pride handlebar mustache on, but like nothing else, just wears a suit. I just love that guy so much. Henry Rollins, we love you. Um, so his influence is there, uh, whether it be musically, whether it be spiritually, um, he does live on in some of our contemporaries. Yeah, and he definitely blazes a trail, and people do discover him later, whether he gets his due in his time or not, and he certainly doesn't. It ends really sadly for yeah. him. We should mention there is a documentary if you want to check it out. It's called Jabriath A.D., Glam Rock's Lost God. Um, you can probably find that on Amazon or Apple Music. And while you're there, give us five stars. Um, what do you think about this for a film, Tim? Who, how do you see it? Wow. Okay. We did an episode on Super Train, the NBC show that was a spectacular failure. He's kind of the Super Train of musicians, except I think he has a lot more artistic integrity than a Super Train. thousand percent. Um, so I think people like seeing stories of near success and failure, kind of a Boogie Nights type arc. Yeah. Um, I would love to see a Boogie Nights style movie about this guy and... I would think people would be lining up to play him. Yeah, the thing is, Jabriath is very pretty. Yeah, um, very pretty and very. I don't. There's no sense of how tall he is. Nothing that matters so much. But it's. It has to be someone who maybe could lend a more. I don't know. I and I feel like I see him a lot, but I see an Andrew Garfield maybe. Oh my God, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, sh- we'll put his picture in the show notes so you guys can help. Mm-hmm. I see an Andrew Garfield. I hate to say this too, but I, I mean Army. Also, Army is already in the queer space. Well, is or there... this could be Eddie Redmayne. It could be... Oh, Eddie Redmayne would eat this up. Eddie Redmayne would die for this, yeah. And he'll get to sing. I don't think he's sung yet in our, any of our films. I feel like he'd be a good singer. Yeah. Well, he because has... he talks beautifully. He does. He has the right vocal tones. Yeah. Um, and then also any out gay actors who want the part, please take it. Uh, although Zach Quinto is too hairy for this. <laughs> Zach, fired. you heard me. You Shots heard me. Fired. I'm an Irish boy. I feel your pain. Is, uh, um, is is Harry, is that meant in a pejorative way? Um, Harry, he, well, it's like, unless he wants to, no. Zach has too much of a dark horse to play Jabriath. Jabriath is like a little blonde alien angel. I feel like we talk a lot about hairiness in this podcast. We talked we? we talked at length about Chuck Norris's hairiness in the Bruce Lee episode. That's true. Um, I don't know. I, we I'm, talk a lot about body as an image and, and, and acceptance. You know what? Next week is going to be called Why Doesn't Anybody Love Us? <laughs> That's fair. Speaking of hair, which Jabriath once starred in a production of. Um, Yeah, he is kind of an angelic sort of thing. I don't know. In terms of adaptation, I would love to see um, like a Joe Elliott figure rediscover Jabriath. Interesting. um, Because it gives it a lens of, because as Joe Elliott said um, at length, he never knew he was gay. And when he found out he was gay, it was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I think that to wrap it in a frame of acceptance and... um, and reverence for uh, a, a sort of otherworldly talent yeah. as opposed to telling a straight up like um, gay tragedy porn story where it's like, uh, oh, two minutes I get to smoke a cigarette next to Marilyn Monroe and then I die of AIDS, you know, like, like yeah. that kind of thing. As we've just seen it a thousand times. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it gets demoralizing that every single story of note that Hollywood puts money into telling is usually about insufferable human tragedy like the plague of AIDS. Yeah. 
So yeah. I'd like to see almost like a like a like a buddy like a buddy film where one of the buddies is dead and his straight friend is rediscovering him. Like a Julia and Julia kind yes! of where, he's, where Joe is looking back through history at Joe Bryant. Let's spin Joe off and this Joe Bryant. I am screaming and crying. <laughs> yes, I love it so much. Yes, I would go see. This I movie. love that. Also, how much does everybody love Def Leppard? I mean, everyone loves Def Leppard. Like every time Def Leppard comes on, you're happy. There's yeah. just no getting around it. Photograph is a very un, un photograph is also a very underrated song. And they could do the soundtrack to Joe and Jabriah. Oh, that'd be incredible. That would be so incredible. And all these all these hoes that say they love and I use hoes in a pl- as H E A U X like a fun playful way. Like hey ho. <laughs> uh, what? How did you spell hoes? H E A U X like hey. So you're like taking the back. Way. That's what we spell when you want to be nice. Oh, that's that's nice. how the kids okay. do. Like hey ho. All right. Um, all these individuals who want to say that Jabriath is such an influence come and be on this original soundtrack. Oh my god. Wow. I love it. Uh, all right, well, let's 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 get in our rocket. Let's wax our body hair and let's take off into this weekend and we love you guys. Give us five stars. Give us a review or just or just be our friend. <laughs>